We're in the middle of a series called Character Matters, where we're looking at the character traits of our God and how we can cultivate those in our lives. This week's character trait, as you've heard, is humility. So I've appropriately titled this message, Humility and How I Obtained It. (laughs) Kildemary Lockhart there. That's the challenge when we come to this trait. The moment we think we've gotten humility under control, the more obvious it is we probably haven't. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity called pride the great sin and said, it is the one vice in the world of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. Well, at least the playing field is leveled. I wish I was further along on this myself to help you, but we are all learners here. In thinking about the virtue humility and its opposing vice pride, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite comics, Big Nate. Anyone, any Big Nate fans here? If you're not familiar, middle schooler Nate Wright is a mess. His locker is a pigsty. He's always forgetting to do his homework. He's a prankster. He's a regular in detention. And he's been in love with a girl for years who's never liked him back. And yet you can't help but like Big Nate. Nate is ever confident, even despite his two friends, Teddy and Francis, regularly giving him a hard time. Here's just a little snapshot into Big Nate's life. Greetings, gents. My card. Your card? I can't even read this. What's it say? Nate Wright, life skills coach. Does irony count as a life skill? Can't talk now. I'm on my way to detention. (laughs) Okay, next one. Greetings, friends. Nate Wright, life skills coach at your service. For a very reasonable fee, I can help you acquire the tools you need to win at the game of life. No problem can't be solved. No obstacle can't be surmounted. It's all about being a can-do person and having a positive attitude. Dude, aren't you the kid who burned off his eyebrows in science lab? See right there, that's way too negative. Okay, (laughs) next one. Everyone, this is Arthur. He's just moved to this country and wants to join our chess team. Hey, Arthur, I'm Nate. I'm one of our team's number one player. I'd be happy to take you under my wing, show you a few things, that sort of thing. Hello. Uh, Nate, Arthur was the boys' age group chess champion of Belarus. Belarus? Very small country, only 11 million. Nate is a classic example of someone who can't see himself accurately. His self-perception is a bit skewed. And while it makes us chuckle in a comic strip, I think we can all give examples of people whose self-perception is skewed and it's not so funny. Whether it's on a micro level with our families or coworkers, or whether it's on a macro level with companies or nations, pride is never a laughing matter. Now, of course, I'm not talking about basic self-respect or self-confidence in either yourself or your strengths. I think we'd all agree some amount of pride is positive, even desirable. What parent among us doesn't want their child to hear us say, I'm proud of you? What organization doesn't want its employees to take pride in their work? The problem is when we have an inflated view of ourselves that causes us to place ourselves over others. One of the best definitions I've ever heard for arrogance is, arrogance is thinking the rules that apply to others don't apply to you. Everybody else should, but not me. I'm above that. 
The kind of pride we're talking about today is an excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. The kind of pride that makes us believe who we really are is merely who others think us to be. When that's the case, maintaining our image with the right approval ratings becomes a time-consuming obsession. We're constantly looking to others as if looking in a mirror and saying, how am I doing? Am I okay? And that's an exhausting and empty way of life. Exhausting because we've always got to maintain the image. And empty because no matter what we do, there is always someone better to compare ourselves to, someone smarter, wealthier, more successful, better at social relationships. And that's just pride itself. I haven't even mentioned its more serious offspring. Pride is remarkably generative. It gives birth to all other kinds of sins. What's more, pride is incredibly insidious. It can transform even the most noble of virtues into sin. If Jesus tells us, I want you to be loving and do the right thing, pride says, I'll take over from here. When we see progress in an area of our lives, say we exercise self-control over our speech, we can feel pride at that very accomplishment. As C.S. Lewis shows in the Screwtape Letters, we can even feel pride over our own humility. Against the crushing burden of self-promotion and others' opinions, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus can unburden us and free us. Jesus can teach us. Jesus knows what true humility is. I want to look briefly at a short poem the early church composed about Jesus' humility in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. You can follow along on page 1785 in your pew Bible or on the screen. I'll make just a couple of comments about each verse as we go. Uh, And then that will together... At the end, give us a good description of what true humility is. After that, we'll look at how we can actually cultivate humility in our lives. Ready? Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul offers, as, an ancient, as ancient moral writers often did, an example to make his point. Likely the poem was written years before, but it fits here, so Paul inserts it. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. Meaning Jesus' nature now becomes our vocation. Jesus' life becomes our model. And here's what he looked like. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, yes, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Two natures of Jesus, divine and human, and two states, his humiliation and his exaltation. And his humiliation encompasses both him becoming human, the incarnation, and his dying, the crucifixion. The poem starts by reiterating the truth about who Jesus was. He was not a man who resembled deity or who had godlike qualities. No, he was God himself wrapped up in a human body. Or as I used to tell my campers at summer camp years ago, Jesus was God in a pod. (laughs) The language here, I know, I was young. The language here was very specific. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, now that participle being, hyparchon, is a stronger form of the verb to be. It means, as one linguist put it, what is essentially and unalterably God, being in his very nature or form, God. Now, there's two words for form in Greek. This one, morph, means the essential form of something, that which never changes. Jesus was fully God, even though what he's about to do doesn't fit our idea of God. He did not consider equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. So he had equal status with God, but he didn't cling to the prerogatives of being God's equal. He didn't hold on to that. Whatever was rightfully his by his nature of being God, he didn't grasp. Now, sometimes this phrase is translated something to be grasped. Jesus didn't hold on to his status of being God even though he was God. Even though he was God, he willingly gave up that status by becoming human. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, sometimes translated emptied himself. And the image here is pouring something out until there is nothing left. But, and this is very important, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of his glory, of the status, rights, and privileges of being God by taking the very nature of a servant. So he is the servant par excellence by showing us what true servanthood is. Being made in human likeness. This is a great phrase. Human likeness. See, his humanity is not the whole story here. There's more to this man than meets the eye. And being found in appearance as a man. Remember I said there were two Greek words to describe form. Morph which was what was used earlier, referring to the essential nature of someone, and this word schema, referring to the outward form, which can change with time and circumstance. Morph is permanent. Schema is temporary. Maybe this example will help you. A person can change their outer form, their schema, as the years grow, from baby to child to young adult to middle age to elderly woman, but they don't change their form morph. Jesus changed his form, schema, by taking on human flesh, but he didn't change his form, morph, of being God. You see? 
And so his decision to humble himself by becoming human and then by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. Far from giving up being God in his incarnation and crucifixion, Jesus is actually the perfect representation of God in that moment. N.T. Wright says, This is a God who is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. If you want to know what God is like, look to the cross. This is the true essence of who God is. Our God is a God who gives up his rights for the sake of others at great personal cost. The first Adam in Genesis 3, 5 was fully human, but wanted to be like God, so he usurped power. But Jesus, the second and greater Adam, though he was already fully God, relinquished his power. He stooped down. Adam, being human, seeks divinity. Jesus, being fully divine, becomes human, willing to give up all the rights and privileges of his position of being God's equal. And this obedience marked him from the cradle to the grave, where he suffered the most degrading form of death in that culture, crucifixion, full of pain and shame. And because of this unprecedented humility, he is exalted by God in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven from where he descended, on earth from where he suffered, and under the earth from where he dealt death its final blow. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is what it's all about. So, Let's take Jesus' example. What does that mean for us about what true humility is? And this is not the perfect or best description of humility, but it's where I want us to land today and press into. Humility means accept where you are as from God for the sake of others and trusting yourself to God. Let me explain. Accept who you are as from God. Jesus really was God. He didn't deny or minimize that. He was confident in his identity and his power. But he didn't use those gifts, that strength, for his own advantage. His whole life was for the sake of others. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He obeyed what God gave him to do, and he trusted God for the reward and the results. He trusted God to exalt him after his humiliation, and God did. <clears throat> what I want to do now is I want to press into these four phrases a bit more and ask, what would it look like for you and for me to live this way? Because ultimately, that's the goal of this message to see us grow in humility. Unlike our eye color or blood type, which is set at birth, you and I have the ability to cultivate or break habits over time through repeated actions. This is part of the uniqueness of being human, and we dare not relinquish that 
power. If we want to become people of humility, I promise you, it will not automatically be infused into our being the moment we need it. We must train for it. So here are four ways we can tone our humility muscles, as it were, taken directly from the four points we just made about humility. With me? First, if humility is accepting who you are, then one step we can take to grow in humility is to see ourselves accurately. Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Turns out this is hard to do. A researcher I respect wrote an article recently entitled, What Brilliant Psychologists Like Me Are Learning About Humility. (laughs) He begins with this. We all know we shouldn't text while we drive, or more precisely, we know other people shouldn't text as they drive. As for me, I'm exceptionally cautious, just sending a few words to help keep life moving. Besides, my texts aren't a problem. I'm an excellent driver. Statistically speaking, 93% of us in the U.S. think we are above average drivers, a conclusion that defies the very notion of what average is. And statistically, most of us do this in nearly every area of our lives. We perceive ourselves to be above average in intelligence, parenting, friendship, marriage, managing money, etc., Yes, we live in our very own Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and, say it with me, all the children are above average. Until we bump up against someone who doesn't think we're so above average. They may, in fact, find us below average in some area, and heaven help them if they do. When faced with constructive criticism, we can, one, Deny or minimize it. I used to be that way, but I've really grown. Two, get angry and defensive and blame them. Well, they're not very blank themselves. Or three, accept it. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say to me right now. You see, accepting the truth about ourselves, even the hard truth, is essential to humility. John Dixon's book, Humilitas, cites a Harvard Business Review on change from several years ago that described the four discernible stages of a company's demise. Anybody want to guess what the final two stages were? You got it. An unwillingness to allow and process criticism. Specifically, quote, the deterioration of necessary feedback and the proliferation of organizational defensiveness. End quote. When companies stop evaluating and hearing constructive criticism, they stop growing. Now, of course, the truth must be presented respectfully, graciously, lovingly even, but it must still be presented. Blind spots aren't seen unless someone loves us enough to tell us the truth and unless we're humble enough to hear it. Just this past week, I was with a trusted friend I had just finished telling her about a struggle I was having when she observed an interaction I had with someone else. And when I finished that interaction, she said, I have something to say about how you just handled that. Can you hear it? My stomach sunk. No, I didn't really want to hear it. 
but I needed to. She was gentle in her corrective, and boy, was she right. And taking her input was helpful for me. What would it look like for you and I to see ourselves with sober judgment? Who can we ask to speak into our lives and tell us what they see? Second, if humility is accepting who we are as a gift from God, then one way to cultivate humility is to cultivate gratitude. If we're going to see ourselves accurately, we'll see both the bad as well as the good. Humility isn't denying or minimizing our gifts. Remember, if you're a good singer, it's not saying, I'm a bad singer. Rather, it's telling the truth about your good singing and attributing the gift to the rightful source. Fact, you're a good singer. Response, thank you, God. This gift comes from you and is to be used for you. One of my favorite verses in first, is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Or in short, all is gift. All is gift. Whatever skill or strength or talent we have is ultimately a gift from God. Yes, we may have worked hard to study or train but we could have not done any of that without first receiving from God health, mental abilities, resources, training, and on and on. Now, gratitude can be cultivated both proactively and reactively. Proactively. Maybe you'll want to list some of the gifts you're grateful for over the next few weeks. I find it astonishing how quickly I forget God's good gifts to me. Recording them serves as a good reminder. And reactively. In the moment when you're affirmed for something you have done well, maybe you can pause and say silently, thank you, Lord. This is from you. Help me to use it for you. That little prayer can be a game changer for us in moving from self-worship to worshiping God. Third, if humility is accepting who we are as a gift from God for the sake of others, then one way to cultivate humility is to serve others. When we're always concerned with our own interests, ambition, and agenda, we're not taking time to further other people's interests. And frankly, when we're not looking to other people's interests, we simply don't find them as important as us. What would it look like for you or I this week to say to our roommate or spouse or coworkers, what can I do for you today? And then do it. It sounds so simple, but you may find that as you try it, you're surprised at how much resistance your spirit offers. Practicing serving others is one way to train our muscles in humility. Fourth and finally, if humility is accepting who we are as a gift from God for the sake of others, entrusting ourselves to God, then cultivating humility will entail leaving our reputation or PR department in the hands of God. I'm calling these the trifecta because this involves three habits Christians throughout the centuries have practiced to cut away at pride. Solitude, silence, and secrecy. 
Let me start with solitude. If our pride is related to being overly dependent and relying on others for approval and accolades, then one way we can break ourselves of that is to remove the audience once in a while. To remove what's propping us up, what's convincing us that we are okay. It may sound strange, but when we get away from others for extended periods of time on a regular basis, their power over us will diminish. Only when these props are stripped away can we hear the voice of our God saying, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I am a child of God loved by you, as we sang earlier. And over time, that will be enough. Silence. We practice silence for extended periods of time in order to gain more control over what we say. The ripple effect of this, especially when combined with solitude, is that we cease managing our reputation with our words. Listen to how Richard Foster describes it in Celebration of Discipline. The tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people might see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. If I've done some wrong thing or even some right thing that I think you might misunderstand and discover that you know about it, I will be very tempted to help you understand my action. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. The fruit of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. I think if you listen this week and pay attention to this, you will marvel at how much air time goes to self-justification. As an experiment, I invite you to spend one day simply letting your actions speak for themselves without defending yourself when you think others might be critical. You might just be surprised at how difficult this can be. And if you really want to go for the jugular, secrecy. This is when we do a good deed without letting others know about it. It's what Jesus teaches us to do in Matthew 5 and 6 by praying and giving in secret. Sounds easy, right? Try it. As Adele Calhoun states, an anonymity isn't really our thing. Recognition, accolades, and limelight are. This practice cuts away at our pride like nothing else. Because a deed that exists for the sake of recognition is not for God. It's for you. So when you remove that, you may be surprised at what is left. Maybe you'll choose to do something really good this week. But keep it a secret between you and God. Trust him for the reward. City Church, our God is a God of humility. A God who saw his power and position accurately. He knew he came from God, but who used his power and position for others at great personal cost, ultimately entrusting his reputation to God. May we be people who do the same for our sake, because this is a freeing way to live. And for God's glory.
Let's pray. Oh God, we, we know it. We are so conscious of the power pride has in each one of our lives, really just because I know myself. Do we know this to be true? And how it wounds and breaks and hurts every relationship we encounter. Would you help us? We thank you that who you are is so opposite who we are. That you are all about self-giving love. Would you draw us into your very life that we may look just a little bit more like you. And that in so doing, others may see you and say, yes, he is a good God. May it be so. Holy Spirit, do your translating work now for every ear. What is it we need to hear? How can we take these words and actually put them into practice this week? For our sake and for your glory, we pray.